Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Today's conversation on Deep Background grew out of an extraordinary new book that I read as part of a project of working my way through a whole pile of recent books of memoirs and nonfiction essays. The book is called Unfollow Me, Essays on Complicity, and it's by a remarkable intellectual called Jill Louise Busby. Jill had worked for years in the nonprofit sector, focusing on diversity and inclusion when she uploaded a short and powerful video in which she called out white liberal progressives and the corporate nonprofit machine in which she had been a participant. The video went viral and it helped turn her into an Instagram influencer using the screen name Jill is Black. In the years that followed, Jill became a widely recognized figure on social media, commenting on issues of race, and identity. In the book, what Jill does is she turns the very same sharp knife of her incisive analysis and criticism onto herself. The result is a book of searing honesty and genuine self-reflection about the phenomena of power, identity, and race that are occurring in real time today, and what happens when, through her own success, she starts to confront the possibilities of a role of power in an infrastructure that she has been deeply committed to criticizing. I'm thrilled that Jill agreed to come onto Deep Background to talk about this amazing book, and I know you're going to love this conversation as much as I did. Jill, thank you so much for being here, and thank you for your amazing book, Unfollow Me, Essays on Complicity, which I just had a chance to read. I know it just came out and it blew me away. Thank you. I want to start by saying something that I felt very strongly on reading the book, and that is you have an uncanny and exquisitely honed talent for calling bullshit. <laughs> my mother would be so proud. It's, it's definitely a family trait. My mother growing up, she could handle almost everything except for bullshit. So I knew that that wasn't allowed. 
One of the things I want to try to do in this interview is convey to listeners who might not have had a chance to, to read the book yet, and who might or might not have known about your, your online work before the book, the layering that's in this amazing book. And, you know, in the book, there's this kind of subtle process where you start calling bullshit on white people with the dear white people mm-hmm. mode. Then you gradually start calling bullshit on black people with the dear black people <laughs> mode. Right. And then at some point, we get to the third level, which is in some ways the most fascinating, where you start calling bullshit on yourself. Yes. Talk a little bit about what the experience was like for you intellectually when you were discovering that your capacity to, to call bullshit drew an audience. Mm. Right. I always think that people want more honesty than, than they say. I think it makes them feel seen in a way that is intimate. And I think there was intimacy that I had with my audience and trust that was built very quickly because all I really had to do was stay consistent with saying things that they weren't hearing elsewhere. And I think that's still something that I get to do. It's not about intellect. I Subjective, I don't know what that really means anymore. What I do promise is that I'm going to always be doing the work of being honest about how I actually feel. So I was already doing it personally with my family or with myself. It was interesting to me and I was very curious about myself. But then really all that happened was I began to say it in public. And especially as we become again more scripted and people are scared to be themselves online, I think, you know, the messages that I get now are like, oh, thanks for saying the stuff that we're all thinking. And, well, that means that there is something that is happening where people are thinking things and they are scared to show up as themselves. And I don't think that's going to push us towards more honesty and diversity and inclusion or anti-racism work to say, oh, I know what to say now. But did we really fix anything with all of these words, all of this rhetoric to me? No. And especially in the style in which I was doing it, which was one minute monologuing around, you know, I I didn't really react to headlines because that felt like it was going to date my material. So I wasn't doing that. Um, But I, I just I got tired of it. And I started answering my own questions, such as if I were a white liberal person in a scary and chaotic society where I don't feel like I have a lot of control outside of my identity and the idea of privilege, would I give that up? (laughs) Would I genuinely give that up? I mean, I don't know. I see people of all identities not giving up what they have all the time, including me. And we were entertaining this conversation that we didn't understand how white people could go and do all of these things, but we do them all the time. I pick up my phone. I don't know who that affects. I order from this company. I try not to think about it. We're all doing this. So eventually it felt silly to single out. It could be true, but it felt silly in the work that I was doing to keep singling out when... I was doing some of the same things without the same level of power or history, sure, but I I understood what we were doing, which is trying to be safe, trying to avoid being the other group of people. You can say that you want to help them, but you never want to be them. Right. And in fact, to say you want to help somebody is to self-define as not them. Right. Right. (laughs) Exactly. You know, one of the things that kind of (laughs) I found inspiring and that I have myself struggled with is and you just mentioned privilege, which is what put it into my mind. And I also was thinking this when I was reading your book, the formulation, check your privilege, often translates into acknowledge your privilege. And I happen to be someone who's had a lot of privilege in my life on pretty much every possible dimension. And I have noticed that when I acknowledge and speak about those facts, it sounds like, to me at least, 
I'm doubling down on reinforcing my privilege. Like I do it because there's a value in being honest about these things. And that was the part which I found inspiring. You know, your sort of view of like, just say the truth regardless. But sometimes if you say a truth in the context where people want you to say it actually a little bit, and then you listen to yourself, you can realize I'm actually doing the exact opposite of what the whole check your privilege is supposed to do. Because in principle, it's supposed to be somewhat equalizing. And in fact, I experience it as having the opposite effect. Like I think I'm making myself less equal when I start you know, <laughs> listing the ways in which I've been fortunate and privileged. I start, yeah. I, I'm like, wow, that guy really sounds horrible. Like he sounds like he's really trying to like beat it into your head. Yeah, I, I, I said recently that it feels like its own status symbol. Like I do this and I do this and I have a lot of privilege. And like the more you say it, the more you're kind of emphasizing, see what I got that you don't have. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's not a phrase that I use. And even our idea of using privilege is the way that we solve this is silly because we know that in a few years we're throwing this away. It's going to be the next thing that we say, oh, wait, actually privilege was a problematic word. And so we'll move on to this one. It's, a, it's an evolution and we want the words and the ideas to fix everything right now so that we can really go back to our privilege. So I try not to get too deeply invested in the language that we're using. Stating what you are is not working on it, even when I do it. When you started writing the book and you hit on at some point, presumably in the writing process, that you were going to do to yourself, as it were, what you had done unto others. Yes. You know, that's in some way what this book is an exercise in. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned a few times that you thought of it as engaging with the ego. I've also heard you say this in a few other interviews that you've given that I've listened to. You've referred to the online persona, the Jill is Black persona, as having a lot of quote unquote ego in it, your, your word. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it made me wonder, do you mean to hint sort of that the persona in the book is sort of the super ego, mm -hmm. you know? And then I don't know where the id fits into this exactly, but you know, the id is playing a big role because the way that, the, that your persona in a way was able to succeed is by saying stuff that everyone thinks and no one says. And that's what it is all about, right? It mm -hmm. is all about doing the thing that you kind of want to do that everyone's telling you not to do. And then right. you just do it and, it and it works. So I was wondering if any of that was in play, that kind of psychoanalytic tro troika was in play or whether you were using ego in a different, maybe more vernacular way. I, I am using it in a more vernacular way, but I think the way that you've described it is also true. I think it, it, it's not just what I was saying. I think it was also the way that I was saying it, which was self-righteously, which was um, doing it, you know, in a way that the drama that I had taken for many years allowed me to do it. There was, I was sort of, I mean, I, I knew that it could work, you know, so it's not like I just fell into it and I hoped that it would because I'm so noble. I also felt like if I were at that time smart enough to figure this stuff out, it would be so universal that everybody would love it. That also wasn't true. But yeah, the super ego there, setting out to write this book and doing unto myself as, as I was doing unto others is a great description of it. And I don't, I don't know that I need to label it anything other than the attempt to, to do that. That seems beautiful enough for me. Why does nobody do this? I mean, why does nobody do unto themselves what they do unto others? It's so powerful and it's so honest and it must in some ways feel like incredibly liberating, self-liberating. Is it just that we're all scared of what will happen of, you know, like laying ourselves bare? What enabled you to do it? 
Um, what enabled me to do it was a- accountability from people that I trusted um, who saw me as unhappy and were willing to disagree with me. People that I really cared about, like my mother, who eventually was like, how do you feel saying all of this stuff about white people online? And, you know, and, and of course it comes with like blocking people, ignoring people, telling them all, all of the things that go along with social media. Um, it, it's, again... I just, I got exhausted, you know, and I couldn't be myself, which is also exhausting. So I was hiding all of this other stuff about myself, um, identity wise, maybe even privilege wise, um, things that were really happening in the rooms that I described, I was hiding all of it. And that is very tiring. And so I, I derive a lot of pleasure from getting to finally say, okay, here's what was going on behind the scene. So it's not that it doesn't come with benefits, but I also, I don't think that most people have to. I think we're fine with the persona. So, you know, or maybe it's, it's waiting for somebody to go first. And I don't think I'm the first one to do this kind of work. I think I'm amongst the first to do it from the position that I held on the internet. I want to ask you about blocking, which I've heard you refer to just now and other Mm -hmm. times. And I was actually listening to, in preparation for our conversation, I was listening to a podcast interview that you had given, and you talked about how you had a tendency, you know, if someone was questioning what you were doing, you blocked them. Mm -hmm. And it made me immediately want to ask you, blocking is like some new thing, right? It's a product of social media. Before social media, we didn't have even the concept really of blocking in this way. Is there a special pleasure, human pleasure, in the act of blocking? Like, did we like? Do we need a German word to describe the unique Ooh, human pleasure? I think we always need a German word to describe anything. First of all, but I'd only blocked in the beginning. It was what people did, and I did what people did, but I didn't get enough pleasure out of that because then they were gone. So eventually, what I like to do is engage. I like to screenshot it for my audience. So that was step two, which was a lot of fun. Then I was like, hey, chill, this is ridiculous. And why are you doing this? And who are you performing for? And so then I started engaging in the direct messages with people. Again, I derived pleasure from that also because I got to use my brain to figure out why they were the way that they were. So, you know, blocking, yeah, it's, it's new and These days, I find it to be very performative because people don't block in silence. They tell us that they're going to do it or they warn us that they will. You know, I've seen a lot of things go online where here's an example of who you don't want to be. Don't be this guy because I I told him off and then I blocked him. So, you know, it seems pretty performative. And I think it's something we wish that we could do in real life, but we only wish that we could do it in real life because we've been doing it on social media probably. But what you've just said is super suggestive. And it's something I've actually wondered about whether our impulse to block people in other formats in life might be derivative of the technology in a way, right? Like until, arguably until you could block somebody as a technological matter, you wouldn't think of trying to block them at a, let's say, grander (laughs) level. You might think other things. I want to boycott them or, you know, I don't want to ever hear their names again. But then I wonder if you think that there is some connection between our impulse, collective impulse, it's right, left, center, it's everybody, to sort of, you know, silence people who are different from from we are in this moment and the actual technological capacity to block somebody. Like, did the person who invented the blocking button mm-hmm. actually have a bigger social impact than the person who invented oh. the like button? 
Oh, great. I can't answer this question, but I hope that you find a guest who can, because I'm going to be listening. It, it seems impactful. And of course, you know, it's hard to remove it from cancel culture, whatever we're calling it today, that feels better for us. But I, I think that it does feel increasingly more threatening that we can block people in this way. And I will not say threatening in my identities or the society and how I'm treated. I just mean me, the human who showed up to this planet to do some work and is now like, do I get to do that within the confines of these rules of the inorganic society? And I think we all have that human desire. So when people say they're scared of cancel culture, maybe we should get more specific and say, do I get to be a full human here as long as this thing exists? Not to say that I didn't make a mistake or do something wrong, but do I get to recover, bounce back? Do I continue having, you know, a human experience? Do I get to learn? I, I don't know. So it does seem to be intensifying. We'll be right back. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. NA member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. One of the phrases, Jill, that you use a lot that I'm really interested in is being in the rooms or in these rooms. And actually, the first time I heard you say it, I was like, huh, like, isn't that an AA phrase? You know, the, <laughs> a, the AA people talk about the rooms as sort of, you know, the places yeah. where the conversation happens. You're not using it that way. You're more using it in the, like, Lin-Manuel Miranda, you know, the room where it happens, mm. kind of a space where certain elites have a certain kind of conversation and engage in a certain kind of social performance with each other. 
first, I guess I want to know if, if I am hearing you correctly when you use that formulation. You are. And then I'm really curious about why that is a subject of interest to you. It's a subject of total fascination to me, and it always has been, although I've never used that particular phrase for it. It's sort of why this podcast is called Deep Background, because I was interested in trying to ask people about what happens in spaces of power where the general public isn't allowed in, and then asking people to say something about what's going on behind there. But I want to know, sort of, am I getting you? And also, why you're so interested in that? And then we can talk about what happens in the rooms. <laughs> yes, you are getting me. However, you and I go into different rooms, and we go into them differently. Totally. So as a black queer woman going into the room, I have a lot more on the line than you do. And my conversations are different because I should know better. And the truth is, is if your group got to the place where you keep saying you hope they get, you wouldn't be in the room anymore. And I don't see anybody giving up any money, any vacations, any magazine covers, anything, any homes. But you should know better because you're part of the group that you're saying is experiencing the greatest harm that's out there. And so the stakes aren't as high, you know. But if you had those stakes on your shoulders going into the room, how could you ever forget? It's not just, you know, toasting with whoever else is, is there, but... I do see that there is a conflict. There is some kind of conflict, and we at least need to talk about the conflict of, but how could you be you without them? So what I hear you saying, and I'm, I'm fascinated by this, and I'm learning uh -huh. a lot from it, sounds like it imposes an incredibly high standard on yourself and mm -hmm. anyone else who would say, look, because of who I am, I am supposed to be, and I am profoundly aware of the demand for equality, the mm -hmm. problematics of privilege, right? I'm in the room, as you're saying, as a black queer woman. And yet, if I really took that seriously, there would be no rooms, right? And I, I hear you loud and clear. And as a kind of calling bullshit, it's incredibly powerful. But it also imposes, by implication, like a higher standard on the intersectional representative person than it imposes on anybody else. But I'm talking about the people who are like me. Is it a high standard? I do have a high standard. Now, in my real life, what I'm going to say is, I just wish we would say the truth. If you want to be in there, because I wrote the book. I wrote the book. I wrote the book proposal. I have an editor, an agent, all of that. I'm trying to sell it right now. So all of that is me, yep. <laughs> okay? Yep. That is happening to me. I'm doing this interview right now. This totally. is me. I thought so, of that before I said I wanted to invite you. I was like... <laughs> You know, I'm, now I'm clearly part of the system right, too. Right. And I was like, this all right, well, weird. that's true. Hard to avoid that. Right. That would be bullshit. But I think what I'm seeing is I find that it's dangerous for us to not say that this is what's happening because then it imposes the higher standard on people where it's like, oh, but keep lying and saying that we're this moral and this noble and whatever. And I'm looking to free people from the idea that you aren't more complex than this, that it's just like, we're going to save the world. And also I'm in this room. Just don't lie about it. I just don't want you to lie about it because then we keep trying for something that doesn't really exist as opposed to something that does. You will be complicit. You will. If you want these things here, you will be complicit. What does that look like for you? It's the same as starting this off by saying, I engage with a million things every day that make me just as complicit as anybody else. But if I get a, a get out of jail free card for myself based on identities when I know that I know better, that doesn't make any sense. If you're just giving that to me because you feel sorry that I have identities that are harmed and are, again, in organic society, then don't give it to me at all. I am a human being. I have enough intellect to say, 
oh, I'm being indulgent or, oh, I don't care about anybody else. So it's like, I do know better sometimes. And I trust that other people know better more than they're saying, because I'm also having those private conversations with them. You can go and and talk about this person who doesn't agree with you politically, but you don't agree with you politically. So, you know, I think there is a self-righteousness that I practice online that, yes, I am trying to remedy in society because I contributed to that. And so this first book is really just undoing part of what I have done, which is create a, a harder world for people to be honest about what they feel and think. There's a chapter in the book which walks through like a DM-based conversation that you have with someone who's self-presenting as a proud boy. Mm-hmm. Um, so a white supremacist. And not only do you give us an account of the conversation, you're like totally empathetically engaged with him and you make some degree of humanizing progress in which somehow it seems as though it's at least possible that the two of you are having some form of communication. Yet it also connects up to this question of, is it okay to be empathetic to people who, at least by their persona, are reprehensible and and repugnant. (laughs) Reprehensible and repugnant. Wow. When you have to come back from that, that is really, really hard. Yeah. I am aligned with people that are reprehensible and repugnant. So we, we find out about people that we believed in every day now. And we thought we were aligned with them. And then they do this big, horrible thing. And suddenly we have to act like we were never in agreement with them. Or we never knew who they were. And, and that's not working either. The truth of the matter is, is we had a conversation. It was a civil conversation. I end the chapter by saying, nope, doesn't mean you can do it all the time with everybody or that I have some special skill with this person. The things that are said to me, reprehensible and repugnant, sure. And he believed them. And I believe what I believe. And there's some stuff that I've believed that has been pretty horrible. Not as extreme, definitely. And not, well, I guess it's not my job to say it's dangerous. But I've believed things. And I don't understand why we keep talking to people who believe what they believe. Like, he's going off of his own belief system. And so all I can really do is talk to him in a way where I gain information. I'm obsessed with this idea of how one talks to people who really, really believe something when that thing is wrong on some dimension. You know, factually wrong, then how do you Mm -hmm. get people to not think of the thing as factually wrong, morally or ethically wrong, even aesthetically wrong, like someone just has terrible taste in something and you want to like talk them out (laughs) of it. And I'm totally obsessed with this question. And I always say when people ask me like, well, how do you try to do that? And I do try to do it. I always say, well... I start by trying to figure out what that person believes his or her big picture values are, and then try to suggest that it maybe would be more consistent with their beliefs or values to think some other thing. Mm -hmm. And I think of the whole thing as like trying on clothes, you know, in a mall or something like that back when people did that, right? You know, all you can ever really do is try on a garment and say to a person, hey, try this on, look in the mirror and see if you like who you are in this garment. And if you do, hey, you might want to buy it. And if not, fair enough, like walk away. And I have this, I guess, naive fantasy that by doing that, sometimes you can get people to re-examine. And I had the feeling that if I asked you that, you would say, yeah, that's really, that's very naive, or that's not like the right way to, to go about it. But maybe I'm misreading that 
the way you related to your own conversation in that yeah. in that chapter. I, I actually do have genuine hope in that. It's just scary to say. I feel like I am, you know, saying something that could get me canceled to say that I have hope almost in a group of people. But I do. That's the genuine answer is that I felt better. Even though he was saying things that I imagined he would say to me that were terrible, I still felt better afterwards. First of all, I had a firsthand account. And, you know, it, in, the, in the book, I say that we sort of thank each other after this. And we're very, like, polite with each other. And I see some hope in it. I, I see some hope in that because I've changed. <laughs> I've changed. And I have to believe in that for someone else or else I think that I'm bigger than someone else or that I have more awareness than someone else. And I don't think that's true or else I'm setting myself up for another ego battle. But if I change, then yeah, he can. And I can change from that conversation too. I can learn to talk to people differently. So it was reciprocal and we both got something and maybe we don't get the nice shiny bow on it that people would like to say that we got. We solved racism, but we got something. Um, And these days, why not? It's, it's getting so out of control. You might as well try. And I think a lot of this is then I might as well try while I'm here because the other isn't working. Being negative about everything that I see out there, calling everything problematic or saying that everybody is evil except for me, seems like I think I live a really big, important magic life. And I don't. I think I'm here with other people who are in all of their own stuff and all of their own trauma and all of their own belief systems. And we're doing it together, whether we like it or not. I absolutely have that hope. It is scary, but I'd like to have it anyway. I I find that profoundly moving. And at the same time that I say that, I'm afraid that if I say it's profoundly moving, like I I screw it up for you. (laughs) I want to close by asking you about... um, so far, what you've experienced as the downsides of honesty relative to to the upsides. You write in the book about being aware that there could be a lot of downsides to talking in the honest way that you're doing it now. Book's been out for a bit more than a month. Seems to be, in in my world at least, the people who read it love it and are really interested in it. Have you been experiencing any of the, the downsides of this kind of honesty yet? Or is it sort of like its own reward to be honest like this? So far, it's its own reward. I think that the people who don't love it, I expected wouldn't love it. And so that makes sense to me. But for the most part, it's been well received. At least the people who are reaching out to me have received it well. And yeah, that gives me some hope. First of all, I finally get to go out into the world with vulnerability, like the vulnerability that's present in this book, that's new for me. I've been hiding behind a smug persona for a very long time. And now I feel very exposed in a way that is a relief. But also when I meet people and we connect around this book, it feels like a real connection. It doesn't feel like that same thing where we believe the same six things and now you love me. No, it feels like we're we're connecting around something deeper. It's been kind of amazing, actually, better than I thought it would have gone. And so I guess that's the part of the book that I got wrong is all of my doubt that it was going to be such a, I don't know, something that turned people against me. And, and that wasn't true. And so I would say, well, great to everybody else. Uh, I think that this could bring us closer or whatever your honesty is. I think there's the chance it could bring you closer to people, not further away. And I didn't believe that going in. So that's a huge lesson for me, some humility in like, no, what you're saying is also not so big and 
you know, knew that it's going to create the splash you thought it would either. Maybe it'll be just a soft sort of hug of a book. So yeah, I feel very hopeful. Thank you for writing a book that is unflinchingly honest. And uh, if it is a soft hug of a book, it's a soft hug from someone who knows how to call bullshit. But I really want to I want to thank you. Uh, I want to recommend the book to, to listeners to Louise Busby's Unfollow Me Essays on Complicity, which is the most honest book that you will read this year. And I think of genuine value to all of us in a moment where a little self-reflection can, can go a long way. Thank you very much. And I hope when you have your ethic of post-complicity ready, uh, book form or otherwise, <laughs> you'll come back and we can talk more about it. I appreciate it. And, and thank you for reading and sharing this book. We'll be right back. I've interviewed many successful people over the years. And one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. As I listened to Jill Louise Busby, I had the constant feeling that you get when you're listening to a genuine intellectual working out a very complex set of issues. In Jill's case, the format in which she's been working on fundamental questions of human connection honesty, authenticity, race, and bullshit is the format of our contemporary lives, the world of diversity and inclusion, the personae that we produce on social media, and now the literary reflection on all of that, complete with calling attention to the honesties and dishonesties of the self. In a way, almost all great essayists all the way back to Montaigne have been interested in exactly this phenomenon. Where is the truth as I depict it about myself? Where is the truth as I try to depict it with reference to the rest of the world? What Jill is profoundly adding to that frame is her searing willingness to be honest and to call bullshit on every institutional actor in our current world who is trying to make sense of things and at least in principle to make the world a better place. Her standard is high so high that I could certainly never survive it, and so high that she herself, subjecting herself to that level of scrutiny, finds herself wanting as well. And yet from this analysis comes not a throw your hands up in the air and give up, but rather a radically reformulated possibility of communication and connection, and something that Jill herself was not afraid to call hope. All of that 
in a moment where, as Jill herself suggests, just saying that you might be hopeful is itself an invitation for somebody to be very frustrated with you. They say that every society gets the government that it deserves. Well, it may also be true that every historical moment gets the intellectual life that it deserves. Measured by that criterion, I don't always think that our current era is doing that well. But hearing Jill gives me some hope. Genuine thinkers with genuinely remarkable ideas have the capacity to shape the way we are thinking about some of the hard problems that face us all. Until the next time I speak to you, breathe deep, think deep thoughts, and if it gives you some hope, have a little fun. If you're a regular listener, you know I love communicating with you here on Deep Background. I also really want that communication to run both ways. I wanna know what you think are the most important stories of the moment and what kinds of guests you think it would be useful to hear from more. So I'm opening a new channel of communication. To access it, just go to my website, noah-feldman.com. You can sign up for my newsletter and you can tell me exactly what's on your mind. Something that would be really valuable to me and I hope to you too. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday, and our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. <laughs>